0: All right, who's excited about getting in God's Word this morning? All right. Let's go ahead to turn and to Revelation chapter 8, if you will. Revelation chapter 8. Let's read the first six verses. And when he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Then another angel, having a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. He was given much incest, and that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incest with the prayers of the saints, ascended before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with the fire from the altar and threw it to the earth. And there were noises, thunders, lightnings, and earthquakes. So the seven angels who had seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. The title of my message this morning is The Sounding of the Trumpets. We see now the wrath of God being poured upon the earth. And many object to the concept or the idea that God could be a wrathful God. Now, it's common to find that objection in, from people who are in the world. But I am now hearing it from more and more Christians who believe that because God is a God of love, this is contrary to his character. And I say, oh, on contraire. This is completely consistent with the character of God. And they'll say, oh, well, is it God all loving? Oh, he sure is. But that's one aspect of his character. And that aspect doesn't outweigh the other characteristics of God. That's inconsistent in the theological understanding of God the Father. They are all equal parts of who God is. In fact, I make the argument that when God is addressed throughout the scriptures, we do not see him as addressed as love, love, love. But we see him addressed as holy, holy, holy. The holiness of God demands that he hold his creation accountable for the sins that they have committed against him. This week, I should say last week, I received in the mail one of those white cards that we all get every so often. You've been selected for jury duty. And I'm sure, wow, I thought I had a negative reaction. And of course, it's always very inconvenient, and it's, you know, very poor timing, and living in the suburbs, I always get Daly Plaza or 26th in California, but this time, I got the Rolling Meadows Courthouse, just a stone's throw for my house. So I was kind of excited. I'm like, oh, maybe I can go. See, I've been called many times, and I've gone down there and waited many times, and only one time did I ever make it into the courtroom You know, to be screened by the attorneys and to be asked various questions to see if they would choose me to serve on the jury of that trial. Well, the case that I was brought into, be questioned for years ago, was a gentleman who was being accused of inappropriately touching a child. And it's interesting. Because as I was being questioned, they discovered I was a pastor. And believe it or not, it was the prosecutor who excused me. She said, yeah, we'll like to excuse juror number. My number was 13. I should have known from that, right? <laughs> and I think she excused me because she felt that I was going to be too lenient to the defendant. Oh, how little did she know I wanted to say to her on the way out, boy, did you make a mistake, because if you were to prove your case, I would have thrown the book at the guy. Because I believe in justice. I believe in righteousness. I believe that one is innocent until proven guilty. We no longer believe that in our country. Someone's just accused, and they're automatically guilty, right? Right? And one of our politicians said it just recently. He has to stand trial to prove his innocence. Really? That's the way it works now, huh? But if I feel that way, that one should be held accountable, once proven beyond a shadow of a doubt that they are guilty, then I believe that that individual then warrants the consequences that they will incur. But let's think about God for a minute. We see God as a judge. Let us consider for a moment that individuals brought before God who had done heinous and wicked and evil things upon this earth and chose not to receive Jesus Christ. If they were to stand before God the Father in the presence of those who were victims of that individual and God say before all of those victims, I am pardoning this person simply because I am a God of love. There would be no righteousness. There would be no holiness. There would be no consistency with the character of God. And so I say to that person who objects, what would you have God do? Well, I think it's unright. I don't think it's right that he uh, judge anyone. Oh, really? So you don't feel that it's right to hold someone accountable. Well, I didn't say that. But he's a God of love. And I said, yes, he is. And he demonstrated that love by sending his only begotten son. So if you want to escape the wrath to come, believe in Jesus. Believe in Jesus. So as we see these events to transpire before us, let us understand That these events only succeed a period of time where God's long suffering endured the injustices, the unholiness, the unrighteousness, the evil of this world, in hopes and desires that all would come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. But now the time has come to hold the world accountable for their departure, their evil from their rebellion, and from their sin. I often ask those people who object to God being a God of judgment, a God of wrath, what more would you have God to do than to send his Son that you may escape these events? I love what Chuck Swindoll wrote at the beginning of his famous commentary on the book of Revelation. In the book of Revelation, we foresee God using an intensifying series of judgments to capture the world's attention for redemption. A major purpose of God's judgment in Revelation is to seize the world's attention when it refused to listen up until that point. God's heart, as we saw last week together, is for the salvation of people. He came into this world in Christ to seek and to save those who were lost. And even now, his heart's desire is that they would come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, hoping that the intensifying of these judgments would create in them the awareness and the need for a Savior that could only be found in Christ. Unfortunately, we will read and see that this, for many, worked in the opposite way hardening their hearts even further, causing deeper bitterness and hatred towards God, raising up their fists in defiance to God because he had now began to strike at the very heart of their personal existence, the creation around them. But we begin in verse 1 of chapter 8 and we open up with a moment of silence. Silence. And when he had opened the seventh seal, again the seals that were on the scroll that Christ took from the hand of God the Father, there was a silence in heaven for about a half an hour. Have you ever been in one of those awkward moments of silence? Like that one? Maybe you were in a conversation with somebody you really didn't know that well, and once you got by the high, how are you? What do you do for a living? You just kind of looked at each other. I think one of the worst awkward moments of silence for me was when my sister and I and our family uh, attended a funeral for our dog. Years ago, we had big Labrador retrievers when I was growing up at my parents' house. My mom was very attached to these dogs, and when one of them died, she proceeded to have a funeral for that dog at a place I don't know if it still exists out in West Chicago called Paw Prints. And we actually had a memorial, a wake for the dog. Now, as we were driving to the service, and of course it was just us who attended, we got there, we parked, my mom got out so she could go in and talk to the, uh, in, to the facility about the arrangements. My dad said, you two sit right here. Now I had just become a Christian, okay? I was about 17, 18 years old at the time. And he, my dad turned around to my sister and I and he says, if you two do anything in there to embarrass me, you're both going to get it. Now, again, I'm 18 years old and my dad's threatening and spanking me, okay? So he's already setting the scene for an incident. So we got out of the car, we walked into the facility, we were, we were led into a room, and there at the front of the room was the dog laying in a casket with two candelabres on each side and four chairs in this quite large room for the four members of my family. And the director, the woman who worked there, began to proceed as anyone would within with, a memorial service, saying a few words, talking, letting my mom share a few words, allowing my mom to put the favorite slipper that the dog carried around with her all the time into the casket, and I'm just sitting there. Now, you guys know my personality. And I'm sitting there, and I'm like, Lord, I know I'm a new Christian, but Lord, give me self-control. Please, Lord. And then that lady said something that I wish she wouldn't have. It was the final straw. She said, let's now have a moment of silence. So I closed my eyes, I bowed my head, and I just began to recite memory verses so I wouldn't burst out. And as I was doing so, in this moment of silence, my sister next to me started going, (laughs) 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 and she lost it. Well, again, I I just followed, and then I lost it, just laughing. My dad turns around (laughs) and starts slapping us both in the middle of this thing my mom's crying and she's like you couldn't even have the decency I'm like mom we're at a dog funeral I love dogs okay I helped carry the casket out to the graveyard realizing that again we were out there and she did it again let's have another moment of silence and this time I just turned my back I just Lord be your glory glory to you Lord And I looked down, and I was standing on the grave of a horse. (laughs) I mean, it couldn't get any worse. We've all had those awkward moments of silence at one time or another in our life, but this is not that. In fact, I hate to say it, this is no laughing matter. But I had to tell that story. It was so good. This was the moment of silence before the storm. Those moments that you anticipate just before the tornadoes are about to hit. In fact, some were saying just recently about the tornadoes I believe that hit Mississippi that there was this raging storm and then all of a sudden everything died down. And they thought, oh, maybe it passed. And then the tornadoes came out of nowhere. This is that moment A half hour of silence in heaven. All praise and worship stopped. And all of this was anticipation of what was going to happen next. The Old Testament tells us that when silence is given in the scriptures, it often means respect, submission, and of course, anticipation. As one commentator wrote, he said, Here it is, the silence before the great storm of God's wrath. The seventh seal has no contents of its own. Rather, it contains and serves to introduce the trumpet judgments. In the Old Testament, in the book of Zephaniah, chapter 1, verse 7, he writes, Be silent in the presence of the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is at hand, for the Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has invited his guests. Zephaniah later went on in verses 14 through 18. The great day of the Lord is near, it is near and hastens quickly. The noise of the day of the Lord is bitter. There there the mighty men shall cry out. That day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of devastation and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet and alarm against the fortified cities and against the high towers. I will bring distress upon men, he says, and they shall walk like blind men because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like refuge. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them in the day of the Lord's wrath, but the whole land shall be devoured by the fire of his jealousy. For he will make speedy riddance of all those who dwell on the land. As Zechariah said in Zechariah 2.13, Be silent all flesh before the Lord, for he is aroused from his holy habitation. This is the moment in the court proceeding when the jury returns and the judge asks, the foreman, if they have reached a verdict. And the foreman stands, and then the judge hands the de- uh, uh, tells the defendant to stand in the court. And it's that moment of silence that you all just wait in just anticipation for the announcement of the verdict. That is the silence that we see here. That moment that God now is going to pour out His wrath upon the earth. And notice with me here in verse 2. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Then another angel having a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incest and that he should offer it the prayer with the prayers of all of the saints upon the golden altar which is before the throne. The angels of God position themselves before God's throne. Now these appear to be angels of position. We know that the Bible teaches that angels seem to have a hierarchy of existence. They are called by various names, some cherubim. Others, they are called as, uh, uh, what's escaping me? Uh, Seraphim, thank you. All right, you get a gold star today. You get to go to heaven. (laughs) Seraphim. We know some angels are named. There are three that we know. Michael. Who else? Gabriel. And who's the third? Lucifer. Lucifer or Satan himself. We know that angels play different roles within the kingdom of God. These seven angels of prominence stand before God. And they are given seven trumpets to blow, and at the blow of each one, at the sounding of each one of these trumpets, a various judgment is poured out upon the earth. But there's an eighth angel that comes before God with a censer in his hand and with incense in the censer, and those incense are then offered to God with the prayers of God's people. It is those prayers that are fascinating to me, because as we will see here in verse 4, and the smoke of the incest, I always say that, excuse me, with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hands. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar and threw it to the earth. And there was noises, thunderings, lightnings, and earthquakes. So the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. These prayers seem to be the driving force behind the sounding of the seven trumpets. What were these prayers? I believe that these prayers were the prayers that were given by the saints of God over the years, asking for His kingdom to be established here on this earth. Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done. The prayers for righteousness, the prayers for justice, the prayers for vengeance that are found. For we know the Bible says, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. These prayers are now being brought to God Placed on his desk for immediate attention. The prayers of the martyrs that we read about in chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw the altar of the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they had. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, Oh, how long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. That time has come. God is now going to pour out His wrath upon the earth. You know, I wish that all of us could have a dynamic prayer life. But it's true, I believe, what some have said, that prayers are often discouraged because of the manner in which God answers them. God answers our prayers, even possibly by a yes, and we say, okay, right on, God, we can deal with that. That's great. Sometimes it's a no, and it hurts at first. It's difficult at first, but we then begin to chew on it and realize that a no is just as much of God's will as a yes is, isn't it? But then there's the third one that I think is the most difficult to deal with, and that is Wait. Yes we can handle no we can deal with but when he says wait and he often indicates that by silence by silence that's difficult for us we think that our prayers are not being heard we can we conclude that god is not interested or it's not part of god's plan that we pray and for 2,000 years, the Lord has been hearing the prayers of his saint, one particular prayer, and that is, O oh, Maranatha, O oh Lord, come quickly. But we know the reason for his delay is not that he is not keeping his promise to us, but that his long-suffering may be displayed that none should perish but all come to saving faith in Jesus Christ and that's difficult for us. But if the Lord would have come just 30 years ago, how many of you wouldn't have been saved at that time? If the Lord came 50 years ago, how many of us would not have had that opportunity and have been plunged into a period of darkness, the tribulation period? But when he says to us, wait, Again, our first conclusion, our first response is that God is simply not listening. And some might even conclude that God simply doesn't care. Even though Scripture tells us the opposite is true. But because of his lack of intercession, his lack of answer, We then move to that conclusion and then we become gravely discouraged. But may I say this, it is not a lack of caring. It is not a lack of concern. If he hasn't answered yes, if he hasn't answered no, and if that state is simply wait on the Lord, then let me encourage you to wait on the Lord. And in that moment of silence, don't let your mind run to the things you don't necessarily know to be true, but let them be fixed on those things you know to be true, that the Lord is good, the Lord loves those who are His, that all things work together for good to those who are, uh, love Him and are called according to His purpose. Let's keep our mind fixed on that as we wait on the Lord. And not necessarily immediately conclude that he has abandoned us. Now, God has given us many verses in the Bible to help us wait on his answer. One of the conclusions that I have drawn over the 30 years of walking with the Lord is this. That God's timing is certainly not my timing. Now, I wish I could tell you this morning that I understand God's timing. Oh, I get it. I don't. I don't get God's timing. The only thing that I know for certain about God's timing is this, that it's always perfect. I don't fully understand it. Again, when I pray and I give God my timeline and my agenda... I think I'm helping them out. Oh, Lord, here's what I need and here's when I need it and I'll just leave the rest to you. But part of our walk of faith is allowing God to answer our prayers in his timing and in his way. Because in each of those cases, I know that he will receive the most glory by doing so. But God has encouraged us. For example, in 1 John five fourteen through 15, notice what he says here, in the light of our discussion about waiting on God to answer our prayers. Now this is the confidence that we have in him. Notice the word confidence. We can be confident. it's something we know to be true. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have petitions that we have asked him. So I know that whatever I pray in God's will, he hears, right? I can have confidence in that. I can have confidence in that. Well, you come back and say to me, well, pastor, what is God's will? How can I know God's will? You can know God's will by knowing God's word. For Jesus himself told us in John 15, 7, he says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. Knowing God's word enlightens us to God's will. Now that will is a general will that God has for Christians. All Christians are subjected to God's general will that He has for us. But I do believe that God often has a specific will for us that isn't clearly articulated and written in Scripture, but is revealed to us as we walk with God over time. That will is part of the plan and purpose that God has for our lives. And when we pray concerning those things, then we simply wait on him to open and close doors accordingly. Again, the Christian life is a walk of faith. But to guard our hearts as we wait on the Lord, the Lord promises us a third dynamic. He gives us a third dynamic to guard our hearts and minds as we wait on the Lord. And that's found in Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Where he says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ. Now when those martyrs prayed the prayer and asked God, oh, how long until you, you know, You judge the world for the cruelty and the evil that we have experienced. I wonder if they ever truly anticipated that God's wrath would be poured out in the way that it will be in just a moment. I think of Habakkuk. Habakkuk is one of my favorite Old Testament prophets. And Habakkuk, you know, in chapter one, petitions God and says, God, things are so bad. Here in Israel. It's terrible. And nothing seems to be done about it. It just keeps going on and on. And people are getting away with more and more. And it just seems like you're silent, Lord. That you don't understand. Or that you don't care. And so Habakkuk, we see at the very beginning of his writings, is he's complaining to God for God's apparent indifference to their situation. But then God decides to answer his prayer and says, you wouldn't believe it, Habakkuk, if I told you what I'm about to do. And God then revealed to Habakkuk that he was going to bring the Babylonians down to judge his people. And then after Habakkuk saw that, or uh, Habakkuk, whatever you like to say it, saw it, it isn't, he didn't go, oh, Lord, thank you. He's like, whoa, wait a minute. That's a little extreme, God. <laughs> I was thinking maybe just another prophet and come alongside me. We just go and preach, and they all repent, and everything's great. But God said, no. I'm going to judge my people like they've never been judged before, and I'm going to use the Babylonians to do The Babylonians are worse than we are, God. How could you possibly use them? Because in my hand, they are an instrument of righteousness. And God now pours out his wrath upon his own creation, upon the very elements that are needed to sustain life here on this earth. And when we have discussions about climate change today, I wonder if they ever read Revelation chapter 8. Oh, the climate is going to change. And I think the only people who aren't going to notice it are the people who live in Chicago. (laughs) You know why? Because it's not like it was 80 one week and then snowing the very next day, right? It's like God loves to keep Chicagoans on their toes, doesn't he? It's like, oh, I'm going to put away all my winter clothes. And we put them all in the closet. We shut the door, you know, and pull out all the shorts and everything. And the moment we get the last one put away and the last one taken out, it snows, right? And then you see all those people who are kind of like really confused. You know, they have shorts and sandals, but then a winter jacket on top, you know. Because they're so good. It's like, what's going to happen next? Yeah. Climate change. Are you kidding? If you don't like the weather, just wait an hour here. But notice what happens as the trumpets begin to sound. And in Revelation chapter 8, we are only given the first four of the seven, because the last three in chapter 9 are introduced with words such as woe and of terror. Notice with me in chapter 8 verse 7, and then the first angel sounded, and hail and fire followed, mingled with blood. And they were thrown to the earth, and a third of the trees burned up, and all of the green grass was burned up. The Greek word for trees there is fruit trees. It seems as if God is targeting the agricultural aspects of the world. We see that over the last two years, our food supply chains have been greatly questioned, haven't they? It's amazing to find out how many various food plants in America over the last year have experienced these fires out of nowhere. In fact, even a plane crashing into a a chicken and an egg-laying facility. You know, chickens have really had it hard the last year or so, haven't they? Someday we're going to be paying $5 for a dozen of eggs, Right? You know when Heidi and David come in every Sunday morning with their eggs from their farm we have to have them escorted by the deacons of the church armed because they are such a precious commodity. You know people ask me are, are you going to you know take your money out of the bank and buy gold and silver? No, I'm going to buy eggs. Are you kidding? But notice The fruit trees, a third of them destroyed. The green grass is destroyed. Notice as one commentator wrote, Dr. Warren Worsby, the target of this judgment is the green vegetation upon the world. The trees and the grass and one third of which are burned up. One can well imagine how this would affect not only the balance of nature, but also the food supply. The Greek word for trees here means fruit trees. And the destruction of the pasture lands would be devastating the milk and meat industries of our society. And notice in verse 8, as the second trumpet is sounded, then the second angel sounded and something like a great mountain. Something like, of course, this is just, he's just trying to give imagery that he can to explain what he is seeing. And he says here, This burning mountain with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. Wow. All of us have seen the various disasters that our seas and oceans have incurred over the years. I'll never forget flying down to Florida, spending some time on the Gulf Coast. And it happened to be just after that BP spill years ago. And we couldn't go into the water because of the contamination. I think we've seen the videos of the plastic that is being, you know, taken out of our seas and the sea life being, you know, uh, Killed off by some of the plastic that has been thrown into the sea. Then we had the nuclear reactor in Japan years ago, remember. And the radiation spread throughout the sea. All of those are going to pale in comparison to the event in which God brings upon the sea. How much of the food supply is produced from the sea? God again bringing the world under judgment. Again, as Warren Worsby said, I like to read some of his insights, considering that the oceans occupy three-fourths of the earth's surface, you can imagine the extent of this judgment. The pollution of the water and the death of so many creatures would greatly affect the balance of life in the oceans, and this would undoubtedly lead to further insoluble problems, which brings us to the third trumpet. Then a third angel sounded, and a great star fell burning like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers, on the springs of water. And the name of the star was Wormwood, another term for bitterness. And a third of the waters became Wormwood, and many men died from the water because it was made bitter by God. Now, let me remind you that as we read through Revelation together on Sunday morning, much of Revelation has already been given to us in the Old Testament. The imagery that is given. For example, the censer of God being waved before him with the prayers of the saints. That's imagery from the tabernacle and the temple. When the high priest, once a year, would come before God in the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was stored. He would bring with him a censer, and that censer would contain the coals from the brazen altar. He would then take incense and throw it on those brazen coals, and the smoke that was created represented the prayers of the people of Israel. As he went in before God, here the angel is doing that before us today. So much of the imagery given to us in Revelation concerning the throne room of God has already been displayed for us in the tabernacle and in the temple in the Old Testament. Here again, we see more of that imagery given to us as we continue looking at the various judgments of God paralleling those of the ten plagues of Egypt, where God overthrew the various egyptian gods that were held to at that time showing his superiority over those gods in each of the various plagues that he pronounced upon the nation of egypt here it is upon the whole entire world so often many get confused when reading the book of revelation because they simply don't have a a familiarity with the old testament but once you read the Old Testament through, the imagery of Revelation makes much more sense. It's like the key to any map, the legend of any map, giving definition to the various symbols that that map contains. So, are, so is the imagery of Revelation before us. As Warren Worsby went on to say about the third trumpet, he said, "...if the people who drink from these waters are in danger of dying." What must happen to the fish and the other creatures that live in these waters? And what would happen to the vegetation near these rivers? If the ecologists are worried about the deadly consequences of water pollution today, what will they think when the third trumpet blows? And that brings us to the fourth. Then the fourth angel sounded and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, a third of the stars, so that a third of them were darkened. A third of the day did not shine, and likewise the night. And I looked, and I heard an angel flying through the mists of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth, because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about To sound this time of darkness again revealed in the old testament amos talked about this when he said in amos chapter 5 verses 18 through 20 woe to you who desire the day of the lord he says for what good is the day of the lord to you it will be darkness and not light it will be as though a man fled from a lion and a bear met him you want to talk about having a bad day or as though he went into the house leaned on his hand on the he leaned his hand on the wall and a serpent bit him is not the day of the lord darkness and not light it is not very dark with no bright is it not very dark with no brightness in it joel echoed these same ideas in joel chapter 2 verses 1 through 3 he says blow the trumpet in zion And sound the alarm. And in my holy mountain, let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming, for it is at hand, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, like the morning clouds spread over the mountains. A people come great and strong, like of whom has never been, nor will there ever be such after them even for many successive generations. A fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, and behind them a desolation wilderness. Surely nothing shall escape them. Throughout the Bible, when trumpets sounded, it meant various things. It could announce the giving of a law as the king would proclaim Throughout the land, a law was being given. When a king was anointed and his crown placed upon his head, the trumpets would sound. When Jericho was challenged by the Jewish people, God had them march around the city of Jericho and on their last time around, blow the trumpets. And in the wake of that blast, the city walls fell the voice of the lord is often called a trumpet that sounds and we know that the bible tells us that when god calls us the church back to him at the time of the rapture it will per- it will succeed a blast of a trumpet calling his people home but in this case the first four trumpets have sounded the judgment of the earth has begun We are told that the next three are going to be even more devastating than the first four. Where the term woe, woe, woe is used. And that is parallel to the book of Isaiah. As Isaiah called the people into judgment back in his day. And pronounced that the coming of the Lord was at hand. But all of this is still yet future. The day that we occupy today today is umbrellaed by the long suffering of God as he waits patiently for everyone who will receive his Son as their Savior. That's why I believe that you and I should take advantage of this moment, praying for our friends and family who do not know the Lord, asking God to open their eyes from the blindness that Satan has placed upon them, Because we know that things are only going to get worse as time goes on. That after the church is removed, the Antichrist will be released and the judgments of God will be poured upon this earth. And I'm sorry, I used to read Revelation and say, oh, the Lord is going to finally pour out on the world what the world deserves. But now I realize that if it wasn't for Christ, I would deserve that. And I don't wish what we have read upon my worst enemy. Can you imagine the chaos, the confusion? Can you imagine a society such as ours who are so self-consumed being subjected to those kind of circumstances? Do you think that all of a sudden that they're going to become generous people? It's going to be every man, woman, and child for themselves and to heck with everybody else. No, this is not something I desire for my worst enemy. And if God is long-suffering enough to give people the opportunity to receive His Son, then why should we not be pointing people His way? Amen?